in community with one another? And what does it really look like to be better together? And that's the goal, is to talk about that for this month. And uh, if I was to answer that, I think the, for me, one of the primary ways to answer that question is what's known in the scriptures as the one another's. I'm sure many of you are familiar with that. There's a little image that'll go up on the screen. There are 59, this is not all of them, obviously, but 59 one another statements in the scriptures. All of the commands are directed at interpersonal relationships with one another, kind of defining what it means to be together. So we're to build up one another, to welcome one another, to serve one another, submit, forgive, confess, pray, live in harmony with. You get the idea, it goes on for 59 one another statements. And it's to this that we've been called. If we were to define very simply what does it mean to be a community or to be better together, it would be to live out the 59 commands of being with one another. But what Paul does that I think is quite interesting is most of what he writes in the New Testament, most of his sermons that he preaches have to do with like the teasing out of those commands. So what Paul does is tries to put a lot of emphasis on what does it really mean to be kind to one another? What does it really mean to love one another? How do we actually bear one another's burdens? And so most of his writing is directed at those kind of actions. How do we really live out this stuff well? And so the bigger question for me that I'm hoping to, to lean into a little bit this morning isn't just, should we be kind? Should we live in peace? Should we confess? Should we be humble? It's not so much that, but it's how do you actually pull that off? How do you live that way? Is there some secret formula to have these qualities and characteristics live themselves out in a community? And I want to suggest this morning that what Paul does is he gives us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 a little secret formula. I say secret because it's like wide out in the open and he's letting us know exactly what he's thinking. But he's describing a bit of a formula for how you can embody these very one another's. So here it is. We'll read it out of 1 Thessalonians 2.8. It says this, So being affectionately desirous of you, we, Paul and the apostles, were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our very own selves, because, we had be because you had become very dear to us. Other versions kind of translate that phrase this way. They say, not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, or our very own souls. The idea is that you are sharing your life, the deepest parts of who you are, your soul with the other. So Paul basically breaks down the formula this way, that it has to be the gospel plus ourselves. The gospel plus our very lives or souls. That's the formula. If you want to live this out, be better together, this is what it takes. 
So I want to remind you of those two things this morning. First, the idea of the gospel. And I think it's important for us to go over this and remind ourselves of what the gospel is because in some ways it can mean different things to different people. So I want to just remind us of what I believe the good news of Jesus Christ is about. First of all, the good news of Jesus or the gospel is a person. First John describes it this way. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim it to you, the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us, Jesus. Right? The gospel is embodied and is Jesus. The very word who was from the beginning is the word that came and was made manifest or dwelt among us. The second thing that the gospel is, is the gospel is good news. That's kind of redundant, but I'm saying it anyway. The gospel is good news. And over the last couple of years, I've described it in multiple ways, and I just wanted to remind you of a few of those. That the gospel is the story of Jesus bringing the unending, stunning love of God to us. That is very good news. The gospel is also the expanding reality of the love of God that breaks down divisions and restores relationships. Pause there for a second. What he says is, I've come to divide the wall of hostility between us, meaning there is nothing between any of us any longer if we live into and understand the good news. Third, The good news is the announcement that everything you could ever try to do has already been done. I just spoke on this, I think, two weeks ago, that what we try to do is have this transactional relationship with God, that if I do these things, you'll love me more. If I do these, you'll be more pleased with me. And the truth is, nothing that you've ever tried to do will add to what he already believes and feels about you. That is good, good news. The fourth, the good news or the gospel is the declaration that adoption into God's family is free to anyone who wants it. And finally, that the gospel is a glorious present reality that expands into an even more glorious future. Over the last couple years, these are phrases that I've placed into talks that again remind us of what is the gospel. The third thing I want to remind you of, the gospel is also scandalous. It's crazy. It's not what we would uh, necessarily um, think is logical. Martin Lloyd-Jones, when describing it, said it this way, the true preaching of the gospel of salvation by grace alone always leads to the possibility of this charge being brought against it. The charge he's mentioning is the idea that grace is scandalous and that we try to limit it, but it's extended far beyond what we think is fair or reasonable. He goes on to say this, there's no better test as to whether a man is really preaching the New Testament gospel of salvation than this, that some people might misunderstand it and misinterpret it to mean that it really amounts to this, that because you are saved by grace alone, 
It does not matter at all what you do. You can go on sinning as much as you like because it will redound all the more to the glory of grace. This is a very good test of gospel preaching. If my preaching and presentation of the gospel of salvation does not expose it to that misunderstanding, that it is not the gospel. The gospel is good news exactly because it is completely free and totally careless. When at any moment you feel to yourself, well, it, it, it'd be good, but I just, not, no, you're included. But I've done, to, no, you're included. But you don't know, but it doesn't matter, you're included. Over and over and over, the New Testament is echoing this idea that grace is extended. And so that's the gospel that Paul is speaking of. He's saying that not only did we share the gospel with you, but we shared our very souls with you. So I want to shift to this second part that he describes, our very souls. And I would make this bold statement about myself. I think my life could best be described as the accumulation of the people who've shared theirs with me. If you were to define who I am as a follower of Jesus, it would have to start back a long, long time ago. And it would start with my mom and dad. It would start with parents who absolutely loved me, but more importantly, loved God. They cared so much about me that they desired that I would know what it means to know and walk with and have fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And it began in that stage, even further back, if you think about it, it began with my grandfather and grandmother. Grandfather being the first one in kind of the lineage of those that call themselves Davises uh, that came to know Jesus. And he left the military and became a preacher and a church planter. And then he raised six boys and then my dad and mom started to teach me the same. And as I grew, I can fondly remember people in youth group that absolutely shaped my life. We did not have a youth pastor at the time of basically my entire youth group existence. And, but what we had was some amazing parents who kind of stepped in the gap. And a guy by the name of Mel Walker, I'll never forget him, he, um, in fact, officiated the wedding for Shannon and I. He is 6'7", and uh, just a mammoth of a man that is the biggest teddy bear you would ever meet. The guy just loves on people with all that he is. And a guy by the name of Ken Rudolph, who would teach on a regular basis and made me fall in love with Jesus and fall in love with the scriptures where I might know what it means to know him even more. And I had youth leaders that were fabulous. Um, a girl by the name of Teresa and another girl by the name of Julie that like modeled what it looked like to be women of faith that also looked cool and acted relevant. And so I would look at them and go, man, those are amazing women, strong leaders, incredible people. 
And then I would look at other men in the group who, like Pat McGoldrick, became a mentor for me. After high school, I went to college and studied in the ministry. And uh, Pat McGoldrick, while I was a junior, kind of getting ready for what I was going to do afterwards, invited me to live for a summer with him. And I lived in his home with his family, and I worked in the youth group uh, just outside of Cincinnati. And man, just shaped and formed me. Um, Several years ago, he died from ALS, and that's like a gap in my life, you know, because these people invested their soul. I had a coach in college by the name of Roger Jacobs. Roger was a man of sometimes very few words. I wanted him to say more, but everything he did with his actions spoke so much of the gospel spoke so much of what it means to work hard and to be committed and to be someone who loved your family well and was willing to sacrifice. And then I left college and went into the ministry in Indiana. And I had two brothers by the name of Dwight and Daryl Peterson who kind of took me under their wing and told me all the things that I was doing wrong. Yep. And the few things I was doing right and uh, continued to just love me and, uh, and, and to really do things for our family that uh, were beyond kind of repayment. And I had a friend that I worked with uh, in college and then in um, this first job in Indiana that uh, we worked together for like 18 years total. Uh, his name is Jeff Rackinator, and Jeff and I even talked on the phone this week, and we talk at least once a month and continue to encourage each other, but his love for people and the way he interacts and cares, uh, he is like one of the, the most gentle um, guys I know, and yet is so firm in his faith and his call to other people. I went on to master's work and guys like Dr. Feuder and Dr. Julius Wong Noi Singh made me come alive to the scriptures in ways I never had before. And the truth of the matter is that I probably cannot tell you a single teaching that was taught in youth group. I can probably recall maybe one in college by any of the people I mentioned. I could tell you a teaching in seminary, one or two of them that maybe shaped some of my thinking, but the reality is that they could have talked to their blue in the face about the gospel, but it was their sharing of their very life with me that actually informed who I became, right? It, the gospel, the good news of Jesus is always mediated through relationships, And we cannot be a people who are better together unless we're actually together, unless we stick together, unless we stay by one another, that we share life, that we rub shoulders, that we're in each other's homes, that we have meals together, that we laugh together, we cry together. That's what it means to see the gospel lived out and made manifest among us. It isn't just some theological idea that sits off to the side that we all kind of agree to or don't agree to or argue over or wonder about, right? 
It's actually the fruit of the spirit lived out among a group of people who are passionate about following Jesus and all the mess that that makes, all of the confusion, the uncertainty. I mean, if you just look at the life of the disciples, it's like, yeah, we're following, let's do it. And Jesus is like, well, but we're going this way. You're, you're walking that way. Well, we're going to follow you, but just like make us number one or two in the kingdom. And he's like, no, that's not what it's about. Oh, stink. Okay. And it's sloppy and it's messy and it's confusing, but that's what it kind of means to be better together, to be in the journey together and to rub shoulders in a way that we come out on the other side walking and looking and acting a little bit differently. And so Paul gives us a bit of a blueprint of what it means to share lives in this passage. And if you have your Bible, you can turn there and look at it, but it's also going to be on the screen. And he starts off by saying, here's a few things you should not do when sharing your life or soul with other people. He says this, for you yourselves know we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. What Paul gives us is four really clear things not to do when you're looking to influence the other or share your life with the person in community. And these four are real simple. We did not do these things to please man, but to please God. We did not do these things with words of flattery, nor for greed or for glory. The leadership in this community would echo all of these things. By no means is it our desire in any way to just speak words of flattery or just to do things to please you versus pleasing God. If that was the case, I would say about half of what I say up here, right? Because I'm challenging or seeking to convict or pointing you to like stuff that forces us to wrestle. If we just wanted it to be flattery, we could simply remind you of how good you are or how much God loves you and then send you on your way and not like call you to the one another's like Paul does, right? But we're also not in it for greed or for glory. It is not, uh, you might not be aware of this, but this is not the job you go into if that's what you're seeking, right? But I would say that's true of all of us in the room, that what we're looking to do as a community together is to, to echo these same things, that we're not in it for this. We're not in it for any of these things. What we're in it for is to, to be with one another in a humble way. Paul basically says this isn't just for leadership, it's also our calling. And he says that in Philippians 2. He says, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests but each of you to the interest of the others. 
in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. To be better together, to share life with one another requires that we don't lean into the idea of being selfish with wanting gain, but rather we lean into being for the other with humility and love being the center of all we do. Paul shifts from what do you not do to share life to what do you actually do to share life? And he says it this way. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. While we proclaim to you the gospel of God, You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Again, in a very similar way, he said there's four things that you should not do he responds with four things that you can do. And these are, again, pretty simply stated in the text. He challenges us to act like a mother, caring and affectionately desirous, or the, the words or the descriptors of that. Then he says that I've put forth great effort, the intensity of labor and toil, And then he said that he had righteous and blameless conduct, that the way that he acted among the community was blameless. And then he kind of wraps up this section by saying that like a father were to exhort and encourage and charge one another. And these are the ways that he is calling us to be better together. And they're the ways that he is suggesting he has among those people lived these things out to invite them into a new way of being or of acting together. And what Paul does here is he uses word pictures simply to capture our attention. As we know, uh, pictures often say more than words, and so it adds layers and dimension to what he's communicating. And so he uses what I would say are some very stereotypical descriptors of mother or father describing mothers as nurturing and caring and fathers as exhorting or challenging. And I think it's important to remind ourselves that we know that Paul is writing this quite a long time ago, and in no way is he seeking to be culturally insensitive or narrow in his descriptors of what it means to be a mother or what it means to be a father, right? He is using generalizations, His goal is to to get us to relate to the text in a different way. And so I want you to think about mothers more as actions and feelings. What he's saying is the way that you would act among one another or the way you would feel about one another, right, is not just what a mother feels. It is also what fathers feel. 
that there is a sense of love and care and a desire to protect. But all of those are actions. And all of those are intended, in my opinion, to create an environment, a feeling. Uh, They're more or less creating space. You've maybe heard that descriptor before. That some people, when you are with them, I don't know if you've experienced this before, but you sit with someone and it's like, when you walk into wherever they are, they create this like environment, this presence that creates space for you, that feels safe. It feels like you can share and be open. That's, I think, what Paul is getting at here. One person described it this way, ministry can be nothing more and nothing less than making space for people to encounter the very presence of God. If we want to know what it means to be better together, it means being a community and being individuals who are able to create space for people that welcome others in, that have just this natural like posture of invitation. I know that there are many of you in here that embody that. That when you meet one-on-one or when you interact, there is this like walls down, unguarded, open invitation. That when you just sit with a person, you're at ease. And people can have that way of being. And I think that's what we're being challenged to be. Another person described it this way, sin is our failure to grant another his or her plea for community. Let me challenge you in this particular way. I think there are many, many people, even in this community, that at times do not feel embraced. At times do not feel uh, comfortable in this space or comfortable with each other. And we've got to figure out ways to invite into community, right? There are times as I come into this building on a morning and I walk past 50 people gathered outside for breakfast. There are times that I walk by with the greatest of smiles and I greet everybody and I feel so comfortable and I feel so inviting and I'm like, man, I cannot wait for you to have breakfast in the basement. And then there are other times, in honesty, I walk by there and I'm like, I don't, I don't feel that. I, like, I feel guarded. I feel like standoffish. I feel uncertain. And I think this is what that person's getting at when he says it, failure to grant another their plea for community. That, that's what we're all looking for, right? To belong to be a part of each other's life. And so how can we be a community that continues to create that space? And then he shifts to father. And I want you to think of father as more speech acts. These are all three words to kind of describe the way we speak uh, to one another. It highlights the language we have. And what I would suggest is that the church needs both, right? The church needs to be able to speak words that exhort and challenge and encourage, 
And we need to be a community that also cultivates an environment for growth. And both of those characteristics of mothers or fathers are designed to say that we should be caring and yet call people out, right? We should be loving and yet lead people. And I think one of the things that the elders and the staff really seek to do, kind of in modeling what Paul is sharing here, is to be both a community that like creates space and also calls us out, right? Loves deeply and says, no matter how you're hurting or what you've done, you're welcome, and yet leads in a way that says, and here's how we're going to do this together. And so the grand result of all of this that Paul's talking about, he says, you share the gospel and you share your very life. And then right afterwards, he describes what I think is the outcome. We'll close with these verses. And he says this, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. Not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says that if we live this way with one another, if we share the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and our very souls or lives, that the outcome will be a community that believes the word and becomes imitators of Jesus and embodies that together. That is our prayer. Let's pray. God, we acknowledge that all of us are truly better together. We are living in um, the waters of individualism in our culture. And yet the entirety of the New Testament calls us to be a collective. Whether it uses words like one body or family, all of what it's describing is not individuals, but a community. It's not me myself who has to try to live and be holy and be set apart, but it's me that has to try to live in the complexity of community, of being together. And so God, may you grant us the ability to live in this space with one another, with the gospel front and center, the good news that Jesus has come and made manifest among us. And may we be a community that shares our souls with one another. That the way we interact and love, the things we say to one another as a father and the things we do to one another as a mother would invite us to be imitators of Jesus. Guide us now as we Worship in song. And God, even if we go off to the side and have communion or write a prayer, in those moments, may you meet us in unique ways. May we recognize the body of Christ broken for us and the blood of Christ shed for us. And that that action 
invited us into a new way of being. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.